Having a marketing background was a huge help to grow the name. A lot of people use it like, Hola Billy, como estas Billy? As a teenager growing up in LA, did a little tagging with spray paint, opened a small gallery in the East Village. I had never done on-air design. My first experience in the art world, I was hooked. Recreated the on-air design for HBO. All of a sudden, New York Magazine came calling and wanted me to do a portrait of Michelle Obama. That's the voice of Billy Kidd, talking about some of his objectives and accomplishments as a rising star in the world of street art an underground movement that's gaining worldwide popularity thanks to well-known street artists like Mr. Brainwash, D-Face, Swoon, Shepard Fairey, and of course Banksy. Billy Kid is the name Guido Rodriguez uses for his work as a street artist, sort of like a certain novelist and podcaster who uses the name Promo Cowboy as his Twitter handle. Both Billy Kid and Barry Fitzsimmons have deep roots in television marketing, and both have other forms of expression they like to... Well, I'll let Billy explain it. I'm Billy Kidd, and that's my alter ego as an artist. Most of the work I, I generate is, is in New York City. I've been doing this for about 10 years, and uh, after a long career in advertising, let's say 20-plus years, um, I hit a, a period in my life where I just felt burnt out. I felt creativity was sort of escaping me, and I wanted to do something about it. I couldn't afford a Porsche and uh, drive 160 miles an hour on the highway, so street art was the next best thing. It allowed me to go out, be creative, and explore my inner demons. I'm Barry Fitzsimmons. In this edition of the Promo Cowboys podcast, we talk TV marketing and branding as usual, and how to face our inner demons, and maybe even chase those demons down the New York City streets. Can you first just define street art? Street art has been around forever. Ever since the caveman uh, put a hand on his wall and blew paint from his mouth onto that wall to leave a, a print, that's what street art is. It's the, the desire to leave a mark in the world, to, to piss on the wall and let people know that you're here. But what's the difference between street art and graffiti? Now you get into the nuance. Graffiti was... Again, it was pissing on the wall. It was basically started out as, as, as putting your name, tagging your name all over the city, getting a little bit of fame by putting your name out. Uh, and it evolved into these large murals, which then evolved into these large, you know, very creative and articulate pieces of art. And, uh, and then street art sort of evolved from that graffiti uh, genre. And there's a lot of hate between the traditional graffiti artists and what are now termed street artists because one might say that street artists probably come from a more educated background and street art was more about uh, sort of wild posting. It was about creating art that you could repaste uh, numerous times all over the world as opposed to creating a single mural that might be somewhere in Brooklyn or in the Bronx or in Manhattan. A third offshoot is that of, that, of that street art genre is the sticker worlds, political stickers, bumper stickers, kid stickers for your notebooks and so forth. But it also um, evolved from street art as far as the, the art genre, and stickers are an easy way to trade with kids from all over the world, artists from all over the world, and get your work up in multiple countries simultaneously. You know, let's say you're a New Yorker walking down the street downtown, or you're not a New Yorker, maybe from out of town. Say you're in the, the, you know, the East Village or, or, or over in Alphabet City. You know, give me an example of the kind of street art that they may see that would be different from a piece of graffiti. Obviously, the scale. I mean, graffiti in the traditional spray can sense uh, tends to be large murals 
where street art tends to be on doors, on stop signs, stickers, on posts, on mailboxes. And it's, it's a reproducible image. That's the big difference where uh, a single graffiti wall might be a one-off, a one-off piece. A street art piece is likely from a stencil then? or It could be a photograph. It could be uh, a Xerox. Uh, it could be uh, markers that you, you – a lot of uh, sort of sticker artists do tags with markers on, on um, you know, sticker paper or, or post office slips and, and paste them all over the city. So, I mean, the, the basic difference is that the idea is, is, is multiples as opposed to single. And and I think you know my interpretation is that there's more of a a finer message to street art, a, a more interpretive message perhaps, and a more you know you sort of mentioned it before, a more educated. I hate using that word, but perhaps higher thinking um, required to to fully get a piece of street art versus a piece of graffiti, which is often you know interpreted as "fuck you" or "I'm the coolest" or you know. It's more about awareness, I think. I, I think so. I, I think, you know, and again, I, I wouldn't use the word educated because a lot of street artists are self-taught. So it's not necessarily school. You know, certainly there's street artists out there, you know, trying to, you know, pursue a message, whether it's political or self-interest. Uh, but I think they, they understand that it's marketability. And, and that's a big difference where, you know, I think the old school graffiti artists were more about, you know, developing their craft and, and the ones that it stuck around and, and actually evolved into incredible artists, um, developed this, this sense of, of craft and, and aptitude in, in, in what we call can control, uh, where that's where they get their, their, their sort of essence and their fame and their exposure is, is where I think street artists are at, at least in the beginning are more about getting the message out and, and getting a point of view, uh, and, and the craft perhaps is, is secondary to that. Um, certainly, there are a lot of street artists that are very evolved. Uh, and, you know, you, you talk about someone like like Shepard Ferry, who, who was a printmaker and, 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 you know, now is a fine artist. He was the original guerrilla marketer. You know, some people use it as a, as a fame vehicle uh, and others uh, use it as a way to get their, their, their work out into the world. Would Keith Herring fall into the category of street artist? He's he's more of the graffiti artist, but trending toward toward street art. I mean, he was doing you know a lot of the stuff was was you know hand done, uh, but certainly he he comes from the graffiti world as as does you know um, someone like Basquiat uh, certainly was a graffiti artist, and and again you know Basquiat um, was out there pissing on the wall, and and so was was uh, Keith Herring, you know, just doing their thing, but. Again, you know, they, their evolution and their craft uh, and their singularity uh, made them who they are. More of my conversation with Billy Kidd in a moment. But first, who likes a little bourbon now and again? I'm partial these days to Bullet, Buffalo Trace, 1721, and now and again, old Jack Daniels. By the way, this edition of Promo Cowboys Podcast is brought to you by... Well, bourbon, and beer, and bar pretzels, and by Promo Cowboy, a TV industry crime novel by yours truly, Barry Fitzsimmons. Available at your finer bookstores and at Amazon.com, and find the ebook at the Amazon Kindle store. 
Now, I want to clarify that Billy Kidd is known to family and friends as Guido Rodriguez. Actually, it's pronounced Guido. Guido Rodriguez. Perhaps I've lived a sheltered life, but I've known only two people named Guido or Guido, and neither of them pronounced it Guido. So what's in the name? Billy Kidd sets it straight. In, in um, some Latin American countries, Italy and Europe, Billy, Billy, the way I spell it, B-I-L-L-I, literally means kid. A lot of people use it like, hola, Billy, como estas, Billy? Like, how are you, kid? So it's another, it's like saying kid. So in a sense, it's, it's a pun on that, kid, kid, Billy, kid. But also, um, as a marketer, I, I, I knew that the similarity of that name to Billy the Kid, there, there's already a you know, a connotation or an essence of, of that, that word out in the world. So, uh, it, it would be easy to remember. So there, you know, it was sort of a play on that, you know, being a kid, you know, I'm, I'm, as an artist, I feel like I'm a kid at heart. So I, I, um, I created kid kid or in this case, Billy kid. Oh yeah. And I think, I think it really works well. And I think your, your, your sort of, um, interpretive spelling with the I instead of the Y singularizes it um and you know when when we look at your art there's a singularity to the work you can see a piece that you've done and say that's billy kid you know you don't you need i don't need to see your signature to know it's yours did you ever hear the history of frank and jesse james and the four younger boys the name works but it's what you do with it that really counts Having a marketing background certainly was a huge help in, in how to quickly grow the name. You know, obviously, I didn't have the history. I mean, as a teenager growing up in L.A., you know, maybe I did a little tagging with markers, some spray, spray paint, but never took it seriously. But now it's sort of making, defining myself as a street artist. How do I, how do I get my work out, and again, in, in the very cluttered world and break through that clutter and, and get fame, if you will? And as a marketer, one is make sure that my work has my name on it. And then two, uh, you know, separate my work from all the other works out there so that it cuts through that clutter. Uh, so it, it was a very deliberate sort of approach as opposed to, um, you know, a core sort of craft. The reason I mention it is because it's very important how I evolved. I, you know, first I go out and I see what's out there. Uh, and then I find out who these people, other people are who are playing in this game and, and, you know, love their work and how to evolve from that. And at first there was a lot of pushback with uh, a lot of other artists and a lot, a lot of sort of beef, if you will, uh, you know, punching at each other socially and whatnot. So rather than combat that and, and you know, come out and, and, and be aggressive and I'm going to put my stuff over yours or I'm going to, you know, beat you or I'm better than you are and all that, I, I want to collaborate with people. Again, I want to have a positive message. So as a marketing guy, I came up with this idea of rather than fight the system, the street art system, why not have them join me? And so I created artwork where other artists can participate in my art. And in one case in, in, in point is is my pink Cadillac. So at first... I was putting this pink Cadillac in the world with a very 50s illustration, uh, literally, you know, based on a photograph that I, uh, from the 50s of a child riding one of those uh, sort of aluminum or metal cars with pedals. And it looked like a Cadillac, but I made it pink. And at first, 
the only social media that we were using at the time was Flickr, it was, it, it, which is a you know, beautiful photographic social medium. And um, so at first people were sort of you know, giving me beef. And rather than fight back, um, I started meeting some of the other street artists and saying, hey, why don't you ride my pink caddy? Why don't you get behind the wheel? So I took my character out and put their characters in the car. And that sort of, um, that really took off. So all of a sudden where people were trying to um, compete with me, uh, people now are calling me to, to say, hey, let me ride your pink caddy. So that sort of uh, became one of my early street art pieces. And again, it's, it's a multiple, even though there's different people riding the car, uh, it's that same image coming out into the world. So it, repetition is very important in advertising, as, as, as we all know. So um, that was one way. The other way was um, the sticker culture. So rather than just collect or trade stickers with other people from around the world, I would take stickers that I collected and, and then put them in New York with very iconic New York backdrops, the Empire State Building, the Brooklyn Bridge, um, you know, everything that you, you imagine in New York. And then putting that online, and so all these other people wanted to be part of that. Like everybody wants to come to New York, everybody wants their work in New York. It's the mecca of graffiti. And your a lot of your works are collages of stickers, and then a central piece on top of that. Correct. People were sending me tons of stickers, and and wanted to, you know, sort of collaborate with Billy Kid. At one point, I was the sticker king. You know, uh, this is before Facebook and and, and Instagram, and this is all via. You know, Flickr, the, you know, one of the early sort of social mediums. So it was too complicated to go out and just put one sticker and document that. Uh, it was easier to take multiple stickers. And then in the beginning, I would go out and literally spend hours putting one sticker after another in the same location, photographing that. So all of a sudden, there's, you know, 50 artists represented in a single image. So my images were being... Um, swipe from my Flickr and, and, and then sort of shared. I, now we call it sharing, but people would take my image because their, their sticker is on it and then put it on their Flickr uh, stream. And then all of a sudden, my singular image was multiplied hundreds of times. And then uh, therefore people find out, you know, who Billy Kidd is. And, and again, it was, it, was, it was a little bit deliberate. You know, certainly I didn't think it was going to take off the way it did. But, um, I, you know, I, I love sticker. I love sticker culture. I have a passion for it. Uh, and once I evolved into um, gallery pieces, if you will, and into indoor art, uh, then I started using that sticker as a, as a sort of collage uh, background for, for my other artworks. Tell me a little bit about one of your most notable pieces, the Michelle Obama portrait. I, I love the game of politics. I'm not a sports guy. I don't watch sports, but I religiously watch, um, you know, politics. And um, I was very sort of captured, like a lot of people were with the Obama campaign. And even, you know, before Shepard Ferry and, and, you know, did the poster that, that we all know now as, as the campaign poster. This is the, the Barack Obama hope poster. You're the hope about. poster, yeah. This is back in 2007, I guess, or 2008. Yeah. So before that, that became the it poster for the Obama campaign. I was out there using street art as, as, a, as a way to, to engage the conversation. And I started doing political work. You know, so um, it was the end of the Bush administration. And I started doing um, these large scale cowboys, uh, all the, the, the different um, cabinet members of his administration. 
And um, I just wanted to you know, continue the conversation. So I came up with this concept where I call it the end. The Bush administration was at the end of its line. So it had a double meaning. Is it the end of the world? Is it uh, the end of the administration? Uh, or is it a new beginning? So um, that sort of kind of caught fire. And, and, and you know, a lot of the images ended up in, in, in blogs everywhere. And, and, uh, uh, and then all of a sudden, um, New York Magazine came calling and said, hey, you know, we love what you're doing uh, in, in this sort of grassroots art political uh, world. And um, they wanted me to do a portrait of Michelle Obama. What was that piece called? They had seen a it, the, the piece. It's it's an Obama collage that I put on the street, and it's it's a sticker collage with uh, an image of Obama, not my own, by 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 another artist. But um, at the time, it was the December issue, uh, Man of the Year, and Barack Obama was the Man of the Year, and there was a big section in the magazine that chronicled the grassroots movement, uh, the arts grassroots movement, how Obama had inspired all these artists from all over the world to create images of him. And uh, I was fortunate to have one of my pieces uh, selected, and it was one of my collage pieces with stickers. So um, when I started speaking to New York Magazine about the Michelle portrait, I, I had mentioned how what what stickers mean to me, and 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 uh, you know what what I think it meant to the Obama campaign. Uh, there was a lot of talk about you know our shrinking world and how um, now through social media, the internet, and through um, you know globalization, the world is ever so small, smaller than it was in the past, and and we're able to communicate and collaborate with people via the internet. And I think that's what sticker culture did. It's it's it allowed me to trade and and communicate with with people in China and and Brazil and 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 uh, Chile and Germany, and so it again, the world becomes smaller and we're able to talk to one another, which I think is a good thing. And a collage of these stickers from uh, people represented from all walks of life, from all over the world, uh, really became a wonderful drop backdrop for what the Obama campaign stood for. And it became the backdrop, obviously, for the Michelle Obama uh, portrait. So when we look at that portrait, what do we see? Uh, well, c- central, it's all stickers. And the central sticker is a large sticker of Michelle Obama, which is uh, a portrait I illustrated, and, and then I, I printed a mega sticker, a large sticker. The piece is, is, the original piece was ultimately 36 inches by 48 inches, but surrounding her, there's probably about 250 to 300 stickers that I collected from artists from all over the world. So it becomes a representation of that globalization uh, in arts in this case. But there was this optimism. There was that hope message. And people from all over the world were, were sort of enamored with that. So I, I think that this collage represented that the idea of a, of a unified world. And your motif for this particular piece that you, you've used in a few pieces is really quite perfect because it's very, very poppy. It's, it's you know, kind of Andy Warhol-ish, posterized. It's, I think, based on a photograph, if I'm not wrong, but it's very two-dimensional. <laughs> That's sort of like my first legal piece, if you will, uh, as opposed to appropriating images that I find on the internet and whatnot. One of the things that um, always becomes trouble for artists is appropriation. And so, um, you know, in discussions with New York Magazine, they, they had the rights to a, a, an image of Michelle Obama that was, became what I referenced. But, you know, obviously you make it your own. So, you know, I, I've been 
developing. It's early in my street art career, but um, my work was evolving. My, my, my technique was evolving. And the image of her was is, is beautiful. So the photograph that is, and and, uh, and it was easy to sort of take that image and and um, and make it my own. You said something along the lines that you're not necessarily taking a stand, but you're really just interested in furthering discussion. Um, and I appreciate that because I think you know discussion is certainly more needed right now than taking a firm stance. There's a lot of politics in street art. Actually, you know, if you if you look at graffiti and street art globally, it's all about politics because, you know, especially in third world countries, it's, you know, it's you can have your head chopped if you will, uh for doing graffiti, but so so a lot of uh anti, you know, corruption, anti-current uh administration graffiti is out there and it's very dangerous for a lot of folks. And even in this country, when we get into politics, you see the graffiti and it's, you know, uh, and you always demonize the other. And I didn't want to do that. And I, didn't want, I didn't want people to walk away thinking like, oh, this guy's an obvious, you know, lefty, you know, tree hugger or anything like that. I just wanted to, to um, put out images that, that engage people and, and sort of, you know, kept the conversation going. It's easy to demonize. It's easy to say to make people the other. But um, I, I have confidence in, in, in democracy and I have confidence that um, democracy seems to work, keyword seems, and I have confidence whether my guy or gal wins or loses, I, I think it's going to be all right. And, and, and my, my thing is, is go out and vote. My problem is that I don't, want, I don't have any candidates I want to support on either side or any side. And so when I go out and vote, I'm like, I'm still going to complain whoever wins. It's the lesser of two evils. That's how Americans vote. So your faith in the system is, is laudable, and I think it may have something to do with your background. You were not born in the United States. Talk to me about where you were born and where you grew up. I was born in Bogota, which is the, the capital of Colombia, South America, and uh, my parents are divorced. I came to the States when I was nine years old. Uh, my mother had family in California, and we moved out there and uh, grew up in, in um, you know, first sort of a, a very um, Latino kind of neighborhood. Um, we first lived in Echo Park, which is, um, you know, it, it's, it's a very Latin quarter of L.A., uh, and... I saw that world, you know, as as a, as a Latino, not speaking English, learning the language, uh, assimilating and, and trying to fit in, and how difficult it was um, when you're living in a in a sort of minority community and and where schools really don't engage you. My first junior high school experience was at, at King Junior High School, and it was sort of the crossroads for a lot of um, Compton kids. There was the Crips, the Bloods, a lot of Mexican gangs, 18, 18th Street, Familia. Um, and, and, you know, as a kid trying to navigate these waters, you're trying to stay away from, you know, all these danger zones. Of course, you know, I'm, I'm going to date myself, but this is, you know, all before the Uzis and the guns. You know, this was still, uh, you know, a bat and chain and, and, and switchblade world. So it wasn't as dangerous as it is today with drive-bys and, and just guns everywhere. But still, you know, I, I knew enough to, to not, you know, 
get myself tangled in that world. But I, I tell you, if I didn't move away from those communities, I, I probably would have ended up in a Mexican gang or, you know, or a Latin sort of based gang. And it's just a survival. Sure. Yeah. From there, my mom and I moved to uh, a, a more Caucasian neighborhood to Igorok, which is, is um, between Pasadena and Glendale. Some of my mom's family members had moved there. So I, I kind of, you know, saw both worlds, whether it's the, you know, uh, Latino gang kind of culture and and then the sort of surf kid culture and um, at Eagle Rock High School was was a really great high school. So you know that was a great benefit, and that's sort of what led to to um, you know me getting into college and and me sort of pursuing the arts. Uh, I had some wonderful teachers, great experiences there that sort of um, held my hand through the process and and kind of encouraged me to to follow uh, a career in arts and and you know um, grants and scholarships and all that. Uh, were you know I was a beneficiary of those uh, of the system. You grew up and had great teachers who um, supported you, and then you went from LA, I think, to New York. But uh, tell me about the the transition you made from being a high school kid in LA to being a design student in New York. Well. I, I had a two-year scholarship to uh, a school in LA, which is uh, it's it's called the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising, and uh, it's pretty much like FIT is in New York. And uh, once I earned my my associate's degree, um, I wanted to pursue a, a career in advertising and design, and um, I started looking into into Otis Parsons, which is um, in LA. And, uh, and, and the opportunity came, you know, they, they accepted me and the opportunity came that I can come to New York and go to Parsons, New York. And, um, my intention was just to, you know, get my degree in design and marketing and move back to LA. But once I landed here, um, I felt at home, I felt for the first time in my life, I felt comfortable being who I was Latino, um, bilingual, because it's, it's such a diverse community here and and you're constantly elbowing everyone uh in every aspect of life and that doesn't happen in LA you're you're in a cocoon in LA and you're and you're in your bubble you know you never leave your bubble at Parsons you know uh during the the sort of like nightclub era of New York uh I would be in clubs and and you know sitting next to Andy Warhol and whatnot it's it's a it's crazy that just doesn't happen anywhere else you come to New York, you, you go to Parsons, you study, and you you graduate with some sort of a design degree. Correct. Um, tell me what you did after that. Right at, right from the get-go, um, a good friend of mine and I opened a small gallery in the East Village. We illegally lived there at the same time. So we just said to ourselves, rather than share an apartment, let's share a storefront and you know we'll pull out you know, um, cots at night and sleep in the back. And, and we did that for, for, um, a little bit over four years. It was a, a sort of very danky, you know, um, storefront that we, we, um, put a lot of muscle into and fixed up and made, made look like a jewel. The, the East village was sort of transitioning. It was up and coming, you know, it, it's, um, tell me where that, uh, what the address was or where the, where the cross streets were. It's on fifth street between second and third Avenue. Do you know what's there now? The space is there now. Now it's a, it's actually a pet hospital. It was great. Cause we were doing, we were designing our own furniture, 
I was working full time at the time. I was working at Details Magazine, which was uh, this is before it was the men's magazine. It was a very downtown kind of magazine. So it, you know, I would do that during the day, and in the evenings, I would work at the gallery on the weekends. You know, working at a magazine, I, I kind of knew um, the ins and outs of how to get your work published. Um, I quickly realized that every month there's a big panic attack because there's 150 empty pages. And they need eye candy to fill those pages. They need good words to fill those pages. And one of the easy way, one of the easier ways back then, at, at least, uh, to get your work published was to create beautiful eye candy. Uh, and I had the benefit of, of dating this girl that uh, was a photographer and worked with an incredible photographer. Had access to a mind-boggling studio, and we brought our furniture there, you know, once a month and photographed it and created these gorgeous photographs that. Um, we then sent to all the different magazines and publications and we got our stuff published everywhere. All of a sudden we were like the uh, celebrity young designers doing art furniture. We were in Metropolis, we were in El Decor, uh, you know, and, and you know, being young, you know, it, everybody loves you. And, and so it was my first experience in the art world and, uh, and I fell in love with it. Billy Kid's East Village Studio Gallery was called Full Scale at 211 East 5th Street. It operated from 1987 to 1991. Okay, so you're doing a lot of very interesting artistic stuff that uh, is involving physical objects and, and uh, the design of, of furniture and stuff. Sure. You know, you're also in the magazine business. But then somehow from there you transitioned, you ended up at HBO. If you're a designer and you're in marketing, most likely you want to be in fashion or you want to be in entertainment because that's where the fun, creative, innovative, forward-thinking work comes from. Uh, everyone follows. So um, I had, you know, working in a magazine, I was doing some fashion, some editorial work, which was really fun, working with photographers, working with models, stylists, you know, a lot of creative folk. Uh, and then I... Um, met someone that was um, had launched uh, had created HBO in Espanol uh, with HBO and and uh, I thought oh my god I'd love to to work for this company and um, he got my foot in the door uh, I was hired and before I knew it I was designing movie posters for HBO I had access to you know the best talent um, and it created some iconic images for the company So, this kid from East L.A., by way of Columbia, finds himself in the East Village among the elite pop artists of the late 20th century, then lands a job at HBO that most of us would kill for. Really, it's a great American story, combining hard work, talent, gumption, luck. Horatio Alger would approve. I asked Billy Kidd, then known as Guido Rodriguez, about the process of creating some of his first works for home box office. The marketing department has a movie that they want to create a key art for, and so they have three or four different agencies working on that, as well as their in-house department. And so I was competing against some really big, big boys. Um, but when I started working at HBO, uh, most of the other art directors that were there at the time had been there since the the inception of the company. Didn't know technology, weren't really versed at all the new things that were happening. So. I immediately came in and sort of turned things upside down in that print world where um, I was creating some very risque images. I had come from fashion, so um, I knew how to take 
a concept from from the paper to a a final product. Uh, And I kind of tweaked the system a little bit where um, I wanted to work with with the photographer. I I wanted to hire a photographer. I wanted to create my own image and not just uh, take images that were given to me by by the film department to to use as key art. And so I kind of fought fought those battles and won. There goes that train. Red, blue light behind. Um, one of my first major battles was was with, with a uh, a movie called The Late Shift, which chronicled the battle between Jay Leno and and, and David Letterman. So it was a really really interesting movie. It, David Letterman was supposed to get the the Tonight Show from Johnny Carson, uh, but as we know, Jay Leno won that. And from the get go, we were told not to use images of the talent because. You know who looks like Jay Leno? I mean, the guy has a huge chin, uh, and you know David Letterman with his tooth gap, and you know th- these guys are literally like cartoon characters. And so they said use illustration. Of course, all the other agencies that I was competing with were hiring these monster illustrators to do renditions of Jay Leno and David Letterman. One agency hired uh, Hirschfeld, you know, the line illustrator, to do a, a, a beautiful rendition of the two, and. I did the opposite. I, I'm a rebel. I'm a street artist. So what I did is I'm going to I'm going to photograph the talent. So um, at the time, uh, the creative director that I worked with um, gave me a, the green light to sort of pull the talent behind the scenes when they were shooting a spot with them and photograph them. But I photographed them like cartoon characters. And uh, so you how did you how did you cartoonize them? Was that something done in post or did you shoot them? I shot them in, in if you with a, with a fisheye. So that, and I was shooting them overhead so that their heads would be, you know, blown out of proportion in in relationship to their body. I literally took and made cartoon characters out of cartoon characters, and they looked like Jay Leno and David Letterman. But best of all, it captured it captured the story. So you got the two talent who play Leno and Letterman into the studio together, and you basically took a hundred photographs. You got them in character, and that's that's the process. That's the process. So I shot them individually. I mean, I was fortunate in that the, the creative director, Marilyn McAleer, the, she was shooting a spot and she said, OK, I'm going to give you $5,000. That was the budget. Hire a photographer and in between takes, take shoot them and, and show me what you have. Um, we had literally minutes with these guys, but they were already in costume. They had, you know, this prosthesis on and everything. So I, I photographed them uh, and captured the likenesses that we were we were looking for, and having done having worked at a small agency, I was hands on on everything. So I, I literally did all the retouching uh, on the original image, and sort of um, created this image that was what ended up the key art. I mean, it was just, but uh, it was again, as I said, you know, uh, there was already key art that was allocated for this for this movie. Uh, but when marketing saw my image. The term from Maryland was they literally fell off the chair, and and um, that became the poster. Um, it was it was quite an experience. Side note: At the time, my uncle Rod Perth was the executive in charge of late night programming for CBS. He was portrayed in the HBO film Late Shift by Mr. Ed Begley Jr. We'll hear more from Billy Kidd about his exploits at HBO and elsewhere in a moment. Right now, it's time for Getting Fired in America. Stories of, well, losing your job. Today, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to read a selection from Promo Cowboy. Not where he gets fired, necessarily, 
we find promo cowboy questioning his decision to accept a creative director position. He's a cowboy after all. It ain't yet 10 o'clock once Belinda and me get in that elevator at Times Square video. Been a step behind her since we left her office at TV station. Them dern high heels must give a woman extra speed on the base paths. Of course, she's been talking the whole way up the square. Sometimes on her pocket phone, and sometimes over her shoulder to me. Guess I ain't been listening too hard either way. Riding next to her in that too slow, too small, too quiet elevator car, an awful familiar sensation comes over me. A heaviness I ain't felt in a long time. Like I'm down the wrong trail. Almost too far to turn round. And I'm only now coming to my senses over it. Wish I could just plain bolt. Like I done so many times in younger days. Times I felt that same heaviness. I make a smile. Standing with my back to Belinda. Thinking on years past. When some small market promo director disrespect me six ways and tell me one last time to stay late without no overtime pay or not give me a chance to get my lunch for a whole month on account of the workload so heavy or yell at me in front of the entire newsroom over some small thing wasn't even my fault and then tell me to pack a box and leave if I don't like it. How I'd wait for all the suits to go home for the night, the techies too, then I'd pack a box and leave all right. Only, forehand, I'd dub off a little F.U. and switch out the regular scheduled promo on the next day's morning show. Instead of that same old image spot, that station had run ten seconds of my middle finger under the title camera, or my big old hairy man parts, or a pile of something brown and steamy laying next to my hat. Thinking all that makes me laugh out loud. Sure am glad I got my backside to Belinda. That door opens and she gives me a look like I'm crazy, mouthing the words, Stop it. We step on out. Old Times Square video. It's like coming home. Now, more of my conversation with Billy Kidd. So, you have a few other successes at HBO that I love the stories for, like the the Marilyn um, Monroe poster. Well... After after the late shift, you know, I, I think I finally, uh, you know, I, or at least I, I had made my mark within, you know, the the agency or the, you know, the, the marketing department, and um, so they started giving me uh, more projects, and um, again, you know, all in competition with with uh, BBDNO and 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 uh, the signers of the world and all that, and. Um, Again, you know, we had the challenge of, of creating an image that captured this new movie, which was Norma Jean in Maryland, which chronicled, you know, the before and after of, you know, the transition between Norma Jean into Marilyn Monroe. And um, everybody was doing the typical thing, you know, Marilyn with, you know, the skirt being blown up, you know, all the iconic images that you see of Marilyn was exactly what the agency came back with. Uh, and I did a lot of study. I did a lot of research. And I found this this image of Marilyn Monroe uh, on this chair, uh, looking back at the camera. She had her back toward the camera, but she turned around, and it was just I had never seen that image before, and it it just struck me. And I thought, wow, what if what if we have this image, but in front of that, it's is the mirror, the makeup mirror, and opposite of her is Norma Jean. So um, it was an image that you know Norma Jean looking at herself. 
as as Marilyn Monroe. And of course, we had two huge talents. We had um, um, Mira Sorvino as, as as Marilyn, and we had um, Ashley Judd as as uh, Norma Jean. And being a furniture designer, I also had the benefit of designing the chairs for the set. And I hired uh, Dewey Nix, who. Um, is a giant in, in fashion photographer. Like Betty had a baby, Bambalam, like Betty had a baby, Bambalam. So you, you did start to do uh, some television design as well, if I'm not wrong, at HBO. That's true. So I was, um, you know, when they merged the departments, this is the age of synergy. Oh my God, everything has to be synergy. So, um, and all of a sudden we have on air and we have print, two separate departments. So, uh, someone in marketing came up with a brilliant plan to merge the department so that key art and on-air promo look the same and speak the same and so forth and so on. So all these uh, creative teams were were put together, uh, and I ended up with Marilyn McAleer, which was great because she was doing all the fun. You know, she was doing the movie posters and and Sex in the City and The Sopranos and you know all the sort of top-notch um, programming there. So perfect. And, uh, and then, you know, one synergy was no longer the buzzword, the departments were separated and I stayed on air and, um, you know, it was a great experience. I, I had never done, um, on air design and, uh, had a lot to learn. But and were you working chiefly in the Adobe, uh, platform and after effects, that kind of thing? Yes. I worked in after effects and I, I, I you know, and I eagerly embraced it and did some, some of my own design and some of my own production. But at the time, you know, people were still using the old machines and what were you on Hal and Henry? Yeah, both, um, you know, and, and worked with all the major, you know, sort of three ring circus and Z and, you know, a lot of 3D work and whatnot. And once um, the departments were separated, I ended up with, with um, uh, Mark Rosenberg and he was in charge of redesign. So all of a sudden I'm in this new position as, as a, um, a broadcast designer, uh, a senior broadcast designer in uh, working with a department that uh, literally you know, recreated the on-air design for HBO. You did end up leaving HBO um, as now as a broadcast designer. I left HBO and was hired as design director for Beantown East. And Beantown is a, a promo house that does uh, a lot of promotions for, for uh, syndicated uh, programming. And um, so I was working in the East Coast office and, uh, and designing um, all kinds of programs from, from The Simpsons, you know, reruns to Judge Judy to, you know, um, anything and everything that came our way. So they were, uh, they were a promo mill of working in syndication for various shows. You stayed with them for a couple of years. Yeah, for three years. And the good, the good thing there was that because it's such a small house, um, everything was hands-on. So that's where, where I really, really got versed in, in After Effects and, and was creating a lot of the you know, design work uh, myself. Okay, we're going to stop here and plan to hear from Billy Kidd again in a future edition of the Promo Cowboys podcast, including the story of his move into designer apparel and how he's blending his street art in the sporting world thanks to a partnership with the NBA and a program called The Art of Basketball. The Art of Basketball was the first time that the NBA had fine art as part of their licensing program, so... Uh, we decided that, um, you know, why don't we get a player to actually become the artist? Uh, and we hired Dwayne Wade, put him on the court, and gave him buckets of paint and basketballs. And he went Jackson Pollock all over the court. I'd like to thank my guest today, Billy Kidd. I also want to thank freesound.org 
and the Pond 5 Public Domain Project for providing the music you heard on this Promo Cowboys podcast. The Promo Cowboys podcast theme music is by Four Barrel Carb. You're hearing it now in the background, and I like how sort of Led Zeppish it sounds. As usual, this edition of Promo Cowboys has been brought to you by bourbon, beer, and bar pretzels, and by the novel Promo Cowboy, a TV industry thriller by yours truly, Barry Fitzsimmons, available at Amazon.com and your finer bookstores. Thanks for joining me. This is Barry Fitzsimmons, a.k.a. Promo Cowboy. I'm interested in your feedback. Reach out to me on Twitter, at Promo Cowboy, also on Facebook and LinkedIn, at Barry Fitzsimmons. Thanks to Patrick Fitzsimmons for creating the Promo Cowboys podcast artwork. By the way, that image is an homage to a Hollywood classic from the 1950s. The first five listeners to private message me the correct title of that film get a free copy of Promo Cowboy. I'll even sign it if you want. Promo Cowboys is a Steve production. Steve is a division of Igloo Media, LLC. This podcast was produced by yours truly, Barry Fitzsimmons. Thanks again for joining us. As Promo Cowboy says, Shoot, didn't think it'd bleed so much. Take us out.